And sometimes, even for us as Christians, we can be shaped more by the headlines that we read in our newspapers than we are by the verses that we read in our Bibles. And hopefully, this evening, we can just grapple with some of this and explore what actually is God's heart for the poor and what does it actually mean for us in our context. I became a Christian when I was 15 from um, a thoroughly non-Christian family. And I just started going along to church because I liked a guy. Um, I think that's a fairly common story. But So when I was 15, I became a Christian, but I didn't really know much about God. I didn't really know much about the Bible. And so it was a real learning curve for me. And one of the things that I thought when I first became a Christian, and probably thought for a good couple of years, was that the God of the Old Testament was very, very different to Jesus. So I thought that God in the Old Testament part of the Bible was full of rules and regulations and you must do this and you must do that and if you don't do this I will smite you and you're going to be in serious trouble but then you come to Jesus and he's full of compassion and kindness and so I kind of concluded that Jesus was like the fluffy version of God like he was the soft version he was the the real you know kind of heart but it was a massive misunderstanding that I had about God and his heart because Actually, the truth is that wherever we look in the Bible, from Genesis right through to Revelation, God's heart for the poor shines through. We see that God is especially concerned about the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. There are literally hundreds of verses in the Bible about poverty and justice. And we see in the Old Testament, when God was setting out the law, the things that we can sometimes see as the do's and don'ts of the Bible, when he was setting out how his people should live, we see him making provision for the poor at the very heart of it. So in the law of Moses, we see, for example, that farmers were told not to pick up every bit of grain, not to go back a second time and pick up what had got left behind the first time, but to leave it for people in need so that they could follow on behind and be fed. We see in the Old Testament law that wages should be paid on time. That when someone does a day's work, their wages shouldn't be withheld from them, but they should be given to them in a fair and timely manner. We see that interest shouldn't be charged on loans. You know, we still see on our TV screens today, don't we, these adverts where, you know, it's sort of 2,000% interest rates. But in the God's economy, in the society that God set out, interest shouldn't be charged on loans and people shouldn't be exploited by that. And we also see that tithes, the offerings that we give, weren't just to be given to the priests, to the religious leaders of the day, but also to be given to the poor. And there were two very specific provisions in the Old Testament that really show God's heart for the poor. One of them is the Sabbath year, which was every seventh year, debts would be cancelled. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 15, where basically, if you'd got yourself into debt, for whatever reason, you would know that on the seventh year, that debt would be cancelled and you could start all over again. It meant that grace was built into the law for people who got into difficulty so that no debt would be forever. And the second provision was the year of Jubilee, which we read about in Leviticus 25, where again, debts were cancelled. This was the 50th year. But not only were debts cancelled, but if you'd got yourself into such dire straits that you'd had to put yourself into slavery, you'd get your freedom back in the year of Jubilee. If you'd fallen into poverty, whether through your own fault or through circumstances beyond your control, and you'd had to give up your land and your property, in the year of Jubilee, it would be restored to you. What this means is that the whole economic system that God set in place was founded on grace. It was built on grace. 
It limited the gap between the rich and the poor, and it modified the extremes of wealth and poverty, because the rich couldn't simply go on getting richer and richer and richer at the expense of the poor, because there would be a year coming around when debts would be cancelled, land would be restored, and slaves would be freed. It meant that there was always hope for the poor. You were never trapped in a cycle of poverty where there was no hope of release or freedom, because you would know that the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee was going to come around and your debts would be cancelled and your freedom would be given back to you. So we not only see this in the Old Testament, that God actually set out economic provision for those in need, but we also see that he was repeatedly displeased with his people about how they treated the poor. When God's people didn't treat the poor fairly and justly and kindly, God regularly is saying to them, what are you doing? You need to sort this out. And if we're not persuaded from the Old Testament then we can just look at Matthew 25, where Jesus really plainly says that how we treat the poor shows how well we know him and how closely we're following after him. Actually, how we treat the poor is a real indicator of whether we even know Jesus at all. Two things that I think are crystal clear in the Bible are that, firstly, God is directly interested in the needs of the poor, And the second thing is that care for the poor should be a vital issue for God's people. And like I say, if we're not persuaded from the Old Testament, we just need to look at Jesus. It's clear in the Gospels that Jesus spent so much of his time with those who are in chronic need in one way or another. He expended a huge amount of energy, spiritual energy, physical energy, emotional energy, with those who were in need and meeting the needs that they had whether it was a need for healing, whether it was a need for food, whether it was a need for acceptance. And we see in Luke chapter 4 that actually Jesus started his whole ministry by proclaiming not only that he brings good news for the poor, but that he is good news for the poor. It says in Luke 4 that he read from the scroll of Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, which was the year of Jubilee from the Old Testament. And it's really easy for us to read that in a spiritual context and say, well, yes, um, I'm poor spiritually and Jesus has come to me and I was imprisoned spiritually and Jesus has brought me freedom and I was blind spiritually and Jesus has brought me sight. But we actually see from the life of Jesus that this wasn't just a spiritual thing. It had tangible implications for everyone that he met. And encountered, it meant literal sight was restored to the blind, literal freedom was brought to the oppressed. The statement Jesus says, where he says, Because the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, it's unambiguous that the poor are the special focus of the ministry of Jesus. That his care for the poor wasn't just a sideshow, it wasn't just that he got on with the real business of stuff over here, and then when he had time, he cared for the poor, but it was an essential part of his kingdom because it revealed the merciful character of God to those around him. When Jesus came, there was a breaking in of heaven to earth. And so often when we talk about it, we talk about it in the context of signs and wonders and miracles. And of course, that's great. And we all want to see more signs and wonders and miracles. And we love it when God does that. But actually, we can so often miss that a key part of the kingdom breaking in was also that the poor were raised up out of poverty and that freedom came. And this also became a key part of the identity of the early church. You know, we read in the book of Acts that there were no needy people among the Christians, that 
that when famine was coming, God spoke to his people. He let them know through prophecy that famine was coming so that they could prepare for it and so that the church would actually not only make provision for its local community, but also for others in other communities as well. Care for the poor isn't a departmental thing that's for some Christians and not for others, but it's an essential part of following Jesus. The closer we follow Jesus the more we see our heart for the poor grow. It's a natural and inevitable consequence that the more we get to know Jesus, the more we care about alleviating poverty where we see it, the more passionate we become about seeing the poor raised up out of poverty. Because care for the poor isn't an optional extra for Christians. It's an essential part of following Jesus. Like I said, in Matthew 25, Jesus himself said that one of the key hallmarks that shows if we even know him is how we treat those who are hungry or thirsty or strangers or without clothes or sick or in prison. It's not something that can be left to a few enthusiastic food bank volunteers because the more we get to know Jesus, the more we become like him and the more we become like him, the more we care about the poor. So you might think, well, this is all well and good and yeah, I'm persuaded, I can see it in the Bible. It seems fairly obvious that God cares about the poor. But what does it mean? in our society today? How does it relate to the guy I met in San Francisco holding up a sign saying, why lie, I want beer? How does it relate to the newspaper headlines that we see and the people who appear on TV programs like Benefit Street? Well, I think there are two particular stories in the Bible that can really help us to think about this. Um, If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Luke 15. That's the second one we'll look at. But before we get there, I'll give you a bit of time to get there. Before we do that, I just want to look at some verses in 2 Samuel 9 that will come up on the screen behind me. I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 9. It's just a selection of verses. So in 2 Samuel 9, starting in verse 3, it says, The king, as King David, asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now we know from an earlier passage of the Bible in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 4, verse 4, that Mephibosheth became lame in both feet when he was five years old. The Bible tells us it happened in an accident when his nurse picked him up to run away to safety, to run away from danger with him. And the Bible says, as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. So imagine with me, if you will, that Mephibosheth comes into this meeting or he comes into your food bank, or your night shelter, or one of your other ministries that helps the poor, and he says, please, can you help me? I'm starving, I'm in dire need. And we say to him, well, what happened to you? And he says, well, you know, when I was five years old, basically my nurse ran with me and fell, and that's how I got injured, and now I can't support myself. I don't know about you, but in my heart, I find it quite easy to feel compassion for someone like Mephibosheth, because... He's in his situation through no fault of his own. He's a victim of circumstances beyond his control. 
There's nothing he could have done differently. And not only that, but he's also so humble and grateful for David's help. You know, he says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? He's so thankful to be noticed by David. And I know certainly in my heart, I find it quite easy to feel compassion for someone who has suffered through no fault of their own and also is hugely grateful for any help they receive. But then if we turn to another story in the Bible, in Luke chapter 15 and verse 11, it's the story of the prodigal son, and many of us know it well. It's a wonderful story about God's mercy and loving kindness towards us. But it also has some application for how we think about those in poverty too. So in Luke 15, verse 11, it says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger. And sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now here I've got a bit more of a problem. Because if the prodigal son came in tonight and said, I'm starving, please will you help me? And I said, what happened? How did you get in this situation? And he said to me, well I squandered my wealth in wild living. And we know later in the story from the older brother that what he actually squandered his wealth on was prostitutes. So suddenly we've got before us a guy who says, I'm starving, I've just spent all my money, I've just been partying it up, I've just been um, with prostitutes, and now I'm in need, please will you help me? In my heart, what happens is I think, well, your own bad decisions got you here. Why should I help you? You've made bad decision after bad decision. And so I think... What goes on in my heart is that I look at the behaviour of the person in front of me and I decide on that basis whether they deserve my help or not. And I don't imagine I'd often struggle to help a Mephibosheth. I want to help him. Something in me naturally feels compassion. But actually, I don't naturally feel compassion towards someone like the prodigal son. And I think these stories help us because they're so relevant to British society today. They're so relevant to our communities, particularly in the media where we're presented with these really stark pictures of people who deserve our help and people who don't. Do you remember seeing the body of the three-year-old boy washed up on the beach? That was in the media and it was designed to make us feel compassion and sympathy and rightly so and that's how we should feel. But what about how the newspapers portray someone say from Eastern Europe who moves over here because they think they can give a better life 
to their family and support their own children better. We're presented with these stark images of people who deserve our help and people who don't. What is God's heart for the poor when we look at these two different types of characters? When we think about people who come to the food bank or the night shelter or a soup kitchen or even the people we pass on our streets who ask us for money, most of us, if we're honest, in our hearts have a scale of those who deserve our help and those who don't. Our society definitely puts people on a sliding scale of deserving to undeserving. Think, if you will, just some of the examples here. How do you feel when a widowed mother of three comes to ask you for help? How do you feel when a homeless person asks you for change on the streets? What about if that homeless person asks you for change while they're sipping from a can of lager and feeding their dog? Does something different happen in your heart then? An asylum seeker fleeing persecution for their Christian faith? Or an asylum seeker just fleeing persecution? An illegal immigrant who's come here to provide a better life for his or her family? Or a woman who's made redundant after 10 years in a job and then applies for 200 jobs but just can't seem to catch a break? Or an unemployed woman who has nine children and another one on the way but thinks it'll be okay because the government will give me more money to support this child? I think for most of us, if we're honest, we put those people in different categories, in different places on a scale. Most of us have a cut-off point for our compassion somewhere along the line. And even for those of us who think, well, most people deserve my help because they're human beings and they're made in the image of God, we'll still have a few exceptions. There's a woman in my church who um, has given countless hours to our food bank And she says where she really struggles is when people come in and demand the food as if they have a right to it, and then they don't even say thank you when they leave. She said that what goes on in her heart in those instances is she wants to follow them out the door and say, give me the food back because you're not grateful enough for it. It's difficult, isn't it, when people just aren't even grateful for the help they're given. So for me, I lived in China for a year. I was working as a journalist in Beijing, and... I was told quite soon after I arrived, whatever you do, don't give money to the kids on the streets. And no one really told me why, so the first time I went out, I gave some money um, to the kids and suddenly was surrounded by about 40 children and couldn't move, couldn't explain to them that I didn't have enough money for all of them. Also, I'm quite short, so most of them were almost the same height as me, so it was a bit of a struggle to even just kind of try and get away from them. So I learned that you had to harden your heart. You had to try and like, cut off your compassion because there was just no way you could help everyone. But one night I was out with some friends for a drink and a small kid came up, somewhere between the age of about five and seven, I reckon, and he was filthy and his clothes were falling off him. They were completely threadbare. And I gave him some money and I saw him go over to a street stall and buy a rice cake, just something like kind of about that sort of size. And I thought to myself, this is nice, I'm glad I'm doing a good deed and he's going to get some food and that's lovely. And I saw him take it over to a woman who I assume was his mum and she broke off a small piece. And, you know, this was just in a matter of seconds, I was thinking, that's nice, she's going to have a little bit and he's going to have a big bit and that's really nice. But then I watched as she ate the big bit and she gave him the small bit. And what happened in my heart was I was immediately indignant I was absolutely outraged. I literally pole vaulted over compassion and just got to a place of just utter indignation where I thought to myself, if I'd known that was going to happen, I wouldn't have given that money to that kid. 
So in an instant, I not only wrote off the woman, but I wrote off the child as well. And I'm only sharing with you what went on in my heart because I don't think it's an appropriate response for a Christian to have. I don't think it's okay that that was my immediate response. I don't think it's okay that I thought, you know, I'd have rather not even helped that child than given money um, to them to have a little bit of food. And you know what didn't occur to me was that maybe someone else had helped them half an hour earlier and maybe the kid had eaten all the food that time and she'd had nothing. It didn't occur to me that, you know, maybe she must have been in such a desperate state to have taken more food than she gave to the child. It didn't occur to me that maybe she would have to carry him somewhere to where they were going to sleep. And in the same way that on a plane they say, you know, put your own oxygen mask on before you help someone else. Maybe it was that sort of scenario. And she desperately needed some sustenance and some strength to get him to a safe place for the evening. None of that occurred to me at all. I was just outraged. And I think that's a thoroughly inappropriate response for a follower of Jesus to have. And I think what we can learn from these stories of Mephibosheth and the prodigal son is so telling about God's heart for the poor because while Mephibosheth and the prodigal son stand in stark contrast to one another, you know, one of them clearly in dire straits because of every decision he made and the other one in desperate need through no fault of his own. Actually, what we see is that the father figure in both stories acts in exactly the same way. So King David and the father of the prodigal son, both of them were looking out. It tells us that David was looking to show God's kindness to someone in Saul's family, which is actually pretty astonishing if you consider that Saul had tried to kill David more than once. But also the father in the story of the prodigal son, he spotted the son while he was still a long way off, and his immediate response was actually to show kindness and compassion and mercy to his son. And so we've seen that God has always been especially concerned about the poor. But what these stories also show us is that in God's kingdom, compassion and kindness have everything to do with the giver and very little to do with the recipient. That God's compassion and mercy is based on who he is, not on the object of his kindness. And so when we're asking whether or not we should help someone, it's so easy for us to look at the person in front of us and to judge them based on their behavior. But Christians aren't called to look at the person in front of us. We're called to look at Jesus. We're called to look at his behavior and how he treats people, and that's the basis for how we then treat people. (coughs) Jesus didn't put any conditions on his acts of mercy. In fact, even being thankful wasn't a condition. We read stories in the Bible about how Jesus healed 10 lepers, and it says that only one of them came back to thank him. The rest of the story doesn't say Jesus chased down the other nine and revoked their healing because they weren't grateful for it. It just doesn't say that. Jesus seemed to be happy to heal all who came to him, regardless of their response. When he multiplied the bread and fish, they were distributed to everyone. Jews and Gentiles came to him. Samaritans who were despised by the Jewish people weren't excluded by Jesus. Men weren't favoured above women. Children were welcome to come to Jesus. His mercy seemed to extend across the whole of humanity, not ruling anyone out, not writing anyone off, not excluding anyone. And not everyone responded with gratitude and not everyone responded with faith. But no one was turned away by Jesus because of who they were or what they'd previously been or done. 
So when we read the Bible with our eyes open and our brains engaged, God's concern for the poor is inescapable. Jesus was motivated by compassion and his mercy for people was radical. He interacted with those on the margins of society, the prostitutes, the unclean lepers, the shunned beggars, the despised tax collectors. And even with the tax collectors, they wouldn't have been poor in terms of money, but they were certainly poor in terms of relationship because no one liked them. No one liked the tax collectors. And yet even with them, Jesus showed them mercy and kindness. And it's important for us to think, even when we're talking about what God's heart is for the poor, so easy we can talk about the poor and kind of say we need to have compassion and then in the next breath write off the rich and talk about bankers who got bonuses and feel no compassion and no mercy towards them at all. And that's not okay either. Actually, Jesus doesn't leave that option open to us either. But the people who were shunned by society for whatever reason not only felt comfortable with Jesus, they actively sought him out. They wanted to be around him. And how good is it when people come to church because they know that they can get help from us? That's how it should be. Because we should be the ones who are known for giving out mercy and giving out compassion. We should be known as those who are so liberal with our compassion and our mercy that it doesn't run dry, but people know they can come to us time and time again and still find it. Jesus didn't put any conditions on his acts of mercy. He healed regardless of whether he was thanked. And when we see him feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000, we see him do it without means testing them. He didn't say to the disciples, that group over there, they can afford, actually, they can go off and get their own food. Just tell them to go away and get their own food. He didn't say, this group over here, they've followed us around for a while. They know that it's going to be a long day and we're going to talk a lot. They should have known to bring a packed lunch. They should have known better. And he didn't say, well, this group over here, they don't even believe in me. They're just here for a miracle. They're here for a sign and a wonder. Or maybe they're just here for the food because they've heard that it's being distributed. Jesus didn't say to the disciples, go around and check out people's situations before you feed them. He didn't weed them out. He just said, distribute the food among them. And I think this has really significant and interesting implications for us as we consider who we should help in our communities in Britain today. And it's not to say that we don't think carefully about the way we help people. It's not to say that we just give out money left, right and centre endlessly. We do need to be wise. But what Jesus doesn't leave open to us as an option is writing off entire groups of people. He just simply doesn't give us the option of saying, you don't deserve my help. Because the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that people get into poverty through their own decisions some of the time. God isn't hiding from that fact. It's quite clear in the Bible that bad decisions people make often lead them to be in dire straits. I, that's happened to me. I know there are several situations where I've been in, in one way or another, where I've felt desperate. And God has never responded to me with, you made your bed, so you can now lie in it. He's always responded to me with mercy and kindness and compassion. God's mercy to people isn't founded on what they've done or failed to do. We know that, don't we? That his mercy to us doesn't come to us in that way. And the interesting thing about a cut-off point for our compassion is it's not only unbiblical, it's also illogical. Because if you read any research, any statistics about child poverty in our country today, you will find that if a child grows up in a household facing poverty in Britain today, it will affect their chances of having good health. It will affect their educational attainment. It will affect their life expectancy. 
it will affect their job prospects. Actually, the single biggest factor on a child's prospects at life is whether they grow up in a household facing poverty or not. So at which age do we switch off our compassion? Because if a child comes in here today and says, I haven't got clothes, I haven't got food, all of us would feel compassion quite naturally, I'm sure. So is it that when they turn 18 years old, we suddenly expect them to know how to manage their money well, how to parent well, to have a really strong work ethic? It's kind of crazy that we cut off compassion at a certain age and expect people, as if a magic wand gets waved over people when they're 18 or 21 or 25 or 30, and then suddenly we expect them to bear no relation to the childhood that they've had. I think a biblical attitude is never, you made your bed, so you lie in it. But it tells us that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our society so often treats people based on their behaviour. Christians are called to treat people based on God's behaviour, based on his character, based on who he is. So we're not looking at the same things as society. We're not looking at the same things as the world. We're not asking, do you deserve my help? Our question is, how can I show the kindness of God to you today? It's a fundamentally different question. I love this quote by Billy Graham that says, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. So often I get my job wrong. So often I want to convict people. I want to help people see the error of their ways, and I want to help them change their behavior so they can become nice, good Christians. So often I want to judge people and look at their behavior and go, oh, I wouldn't have done it like that. Or, oh, you've made that same decision again. But actually, that's not my job. What I'm called to is show people the love of Christ, the same love that's been shown to me. It says in Micah 7 that God delights to show mercy. God isn't reluctant to show mercy. We don't have to twist his arm to do it. If you've ever wondered what makes God happy, what makes God smile, well, this is one thing the Bible tells us, does it? That God delights to show mercy. So often when we watch films that portray Jesus, he looks so somber and serious and almost a little bit miserable as he goes around healing people. I think the Bible says God delights to show mercy. Jesus would have been absolutely thrilled as he healed people. Absolutely delighted as he saw 5,000 people eating food that had just been multiplied. Absolutely delighted in his heart to say to a prostitute where society rejects you, I accept you and I welcome you. And it's easy for us as Christians to think, well, yeah, we love mercy, don't we? I'm sure if I asked for a show of hands that those of you who are Christians here tonight would go, yeah, yeah, I love mercy. I love the fact that um, the Bible says God's rich in mercy and that his mercies are new for me every day. I really love that. But the Bible's actually littered with people who aren't that keen on the mercy of God when it's shown to other people. And you just look at someone like Jonah, and Jonah ran away from God because he knew that God would show mercy to another group of people. And Jonah was furious with God for it. Jonah had just been shown mercy by God himself. He had just been thrown overboard, you know, swallowed by a whale, and then miraculously he's alive and he's on dry ground and he's safe and he's been shown the mercy of God. And yet he's still furious with God when God shows mercy to the Ninevites. And then there's the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, who again is outraged that the father would show mercy and compassion. 
We just need to look at the Pharisees and how they felt about Jesus showing kindness and compassion to people. You know, so often they said to Jesus, don't you know who you're talking to? Don't you know who you're sitting with? Well, Jesus knew full well who he was talking to. Jesus didn't need it to be pointed out to him. But the Pharisees didn't like the mercy of God. These were supposed to be the people of God. And even the disciples, two of them were nicknamed by Jesus the Sons of Thunder. I mean, imagine if Jesus gave you that nickname. It's not great, is it, when the creator of the universe goes, you're going to be called the Sons of Thunder. And they were given that nickname because they wanted to call down thunder on people from heaven because they weren't putting their faith in Jesus. So with that many people in the Bible, and many I haven't mentioned, who didn't really love mercy, it's well worth asking ourselves the question, do I just love the mercy of God when it's shown to me? Or do I love it when it's shown to people who are not like me? Or people who do things differently to me? Or people who have a different attitude to me? Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. That's what we're called to. And loving mercy is hard, especially when we feel we're being taken advantage of or when we feel like someone keeps making bad decisions or someone isn't grateful for it at all. But it is what we're called to. It's what we're called to regardless of the response. We so often put limits on mercy, but God doesn't. Mercy doesn't really feature very highly in our society. If you've been reading headlines, the political news in the last week, imagine how different it would be if the word mercy was at the heart of it. Imagine what it would look like if our celebrities and our politicians and our journalists and people from all walks of life thought about and talked about mercy. It just doesn't really happen. John Piper calls mercy one of the weightier matters of life, but says it's always in danger of being neglected. He adds that mercy comes from a heart that has first felt its own spiritual bankruptcy and knows it owes everything you are and have to sheer divine mercy. I know that I am most able to be merciful to other people when I'm dwelling on the mercy of God that he's shown to me. Because I know that God has shown me outrageous, radical mercy. The Bible says that I was an enemy of God, that we were enemies of God, running as hard and fast away from him as we could, and yet in that moment he chose to show us mercy. And the amazing thing is that in these stories of Mephibosheth and the prodigal son, So often we see ourselves in their place. We see ourselves as Mephibosheth, shown kindness that we didn't deserve. And we see ourselves as the prodigal son, welcomed home, even though we'd made bad decisions. And that's brilliant, and it's a great way to kind of get revelation of the love of God for us. But actually, if you're a Christian here, do you know that your role in the story has changed? You're no longer Mephibosheth. You're no longer the prodigal son. You now get to be like the father. The Bible tells us that we are now in Christ. We are imitators of God. So our role in the story has changed. We now get to be the dispensers of mercy and compassion and kindness. We get the great privilege of being like Jesus and being like the Father. It's not something that's going to happen to us, though, by osmosis. It's not something that happens, I can stand here and talk about it, but it doesn't make me more merciful to talk about it. It doesn't make us more merciful to sit and hear a talk about it. It's something we need to cultivate in our own lives. We need to be intentional about it. We need to be cultivating a heart of generosity, a heart of compassion, looking for opportunities to do good, like David did in the story of Mephibosheth, like the father of the prodigal son did. It's about looking for opportunities to show God's kindness to people around us. It's listening to stories. The guy in San Francisco 
who was holding up a sign saying, why lie, I want beer. I asked him his story, and he told me that he'd been addicted to crack cocaine for years and years, and that he just hadn't been able to kick it, and that he'd tried and he'd been offered help, and he'd blown every chance he'd been given. And he'd just, when he'd been into rehab, he'd come back out, he'd mixed with the same group of people, and he'd got back into drugs. He was very open about the fact that he'd made mistake after mistake. But he said, the reason I'm holding a sign saying I want beer is because in the last year I've kicked drugs, but I've done it by becoming an alcoholic. And he was really open about the fact. He said, I know I've just substituted one poison for another, but actually being an alcoholic is progress for me. It's meant he could get back in the life of his son for supervised visits with a view to eventually being back in his life in a meaningful way, unsupervised as well. It meant that he had more chance of just um, getting through the day and interacting with other people. It was real progress for him. And so when he said to me, you know, I just need $3 today for a beer and a new magic marker to write my sign for tomorrow, I know something in me changed as I heard his story. I felt more compassion for him because I took the time to ask him what his story is. And so often that is what happens. When we take the time to speak to people, we find that God has an opportunity to let compassion and mercy grow in our hearts. Mother Teresa said, help one person at a time and start with the person nearest you. The question for us as Christians isn't, am I helping enough people or how can I deal with all the need around me? It's, am I becoming more like Jesus and am I helping the person in front of me? We get the awesome privilege of reflecting Jesus to those around us. We get to show mercy, both where we think it's deserved and where we think it's undeserved. We're called to a radical mercy that doesn't say, like the media or like society, you tell me why you deserve my help and then I'll decide whether to help you or not. But we're called to, to something so different that says, I didn't deserve any mercy from God, but he has shown me outrageous radical mercy, so let me try and do the same to you today. I'd love it if we could just stand. I'd love to pray for us to finish, if that's okay. If kind of you felt God speak to you or challenge you on any of this stuff, why don't you lift your hands, just receive from him. God, we're so grateful for your mercy. We're so grateful. I know that many of us in this room would have stories of just what your mercy has done for us, how it's utterly transformed us and we would be lost without it. And we're so grateful that your mercies to us are new every day and have nothing whatsoever to do with our behaviour. Thank you that you grabbed hold of us when we were your enemies. Thank you you rescued us when we had nothing to offer you. And Father, I just pray, would you help us to now go and do likewise? Would you help us to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful? Would you help us not to look at people and try and decide if they deserve our help, but look at people and think, how do I show Jesus to you today? We ask you to align our hearts with yours and give us opportunities this week, this month, to do good, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be generous. Would you help us? We need your help. We can't do it on our own. We want to be like you, Jesus. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.